There's a big difference between seeing an empty tomb and seeing the risen Christ. In our study last week, Mary saw the empty tomb and ran to tell the disciples. When Peter and John got there, they saw nothing but grave clothes inside and didn't know what to think, so they just went home, not knowing how to respond to an empty tomb. Well, Mary had apparently been unable to keep up with them as they ran to the tomb, and by the time she got there, they had left. So this morning, we find her alone, weeping outside the tomb, which would seem to be an appropriate response because this was indeed a time for weeping. Continuing our study in the Gospel of John, we're in chapter 20. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked inside into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary wasn't just weeping, she was wailing. The word that's used here is the same word that was used to describe the mourning of the women at Lazarus' death and the death of Jairus' daughter. Now, some of those mourners were no doubt professional mourners. They were women who were paid to weep and wail, so they were really good at it. But Mary was now weeping, and she was weeping and wailing, but it was for real. She had a deep, deep sorrow, and rightfully so. You know, Jesus, the most loving and forgiving man she had ever met, had been crucified. And now, as she sought to pay her last respects to him, she could see that his body was gone. Her grief was overwhelming. Earlier, when she had first gotten there, she had only seen that the stone had been moved and the tomb was open. This time, she stooped and glanced into the tomb. Through her tear-filled eyes, she saw something totally unexpected. Two angels were sitting where Jesus had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Stunned, she said nothing. So they spoke to her. Woman, why are you weeping? Surely, surely no one would think it inappropriate to be weeping in a cemetery. But something in their voice must have sounded judgmental as if she shouldn't have been weeping. So she defended herself because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She had already wept over his death. Now she was wailing because someone had taken his body. She couldn't handle it. It was certainly a time for weeping. But it was also a time for seeking. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, 
and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Why she turned around, we can only guess. Perhaps she noticed the angels looking past her. Maybe she heard something. Whatever the reason, when she turned around, she saw Jesus, but didn't know it was Jesus. Again, we can only guess why. No doubt tears still blurred her eyes, and she certainly wasn't expecting to see Jesus. She had come to the tomb to anoint a corpse. She hadn't even given thought to a resurrection. All she saw was a man standing there. And he said the same thing to her that the angels had said, Woman, why are you weeping? But then he added, Whom are you seeking? As if she were looking for someone's grave. Now She knew that she was at the right grave, and the only person she might expect to see in the cemetery at that hour was a gardener. Maybe he had taken the body. Maybe Jesus' body had been in the way. Maybe it needed to be moved because they were doing work on Joseph's new tomb. So she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Now, I doubt that she had given much thought as to how she would carry the body of Jesus or where she would take it. She just wanted to find him. Would he please tell her? where she could find her Lord. Little did she realize that the Lord had found her. And that, of course, led to a time for embracing. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. All it took was for Jesus to speak her name. He said Mary. Actually, he said Miriam, the Aramaic or Hebrew for Mary. It was a name that would have been used by family and close friends. When she heard her name spoken by that familiar voice, She knew it was Jesus. She had apparently turned away from the man she thought to be the gardener and was again gazing into the tomb when she heard her name and turned to actually see Jesus. And when she recognized him, she cried, Rabboni, teacher. It was Jesus, alive, standing there. She then did what we would do. If we found a loved one we thought was gone forever, she embraced him. She may have actually fallen at his feet and embraced them in an act of worship, as the rest of the women would do when he would later appear to them. But whatever her position, it's evident she was clinging to him because he said, stop clinging to me. And that's a much better translation than the King James versions, don't touch me. You know, when reading this in King James, we almost get the idea that Jesus was some kind of ghost that she couldn't touch. But later that evening, he would tell the disciples to touch him. 
that he was not a spirit, that he was flesh and bone, that what they were seeing was the actual resurrected body of Jesus. The laws of physical science no longer bound his body. He could appear and vanish at will, but while in their midst, Jesus was flesh and bone. So it really was Jesus with her in the flesh. And she was touching him, holding on to him when he said, stop clinging to me. He wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't going to slip through her fingers and ascend to the Father, at least not yet. There would still be time for them to be together, but his time on earth would be limited. And he wanted his disciples, whom he calls brethren for the very first time, to know he was alive and of his plan. The angels had already told the rest of the women to tell the disciples that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. But Mary was to let them know that he would soon be ascending to the Father. They wouldn't be reestablishing their ministry in Galilee. That ministry was over. Jesus would be ascending to his Father and their Father. It's interesting how he said, my Father and your Father and my God and your God. He doesn't just say, our Father. He never did. He did teach them to say, our Father, in the model prayer, but he never spoke of God as our Father, and for good reason. His relationship to the Father is unique on a different level than anyone else's. He is the only begotten Son of God. Now, It is true that God is also our Father, but only if we've been adopted back into the family. And it took the death of Jesus to make us fit for adoption. It's only through his sacrificial death that we can be cleansed of our sin and given the privilege of calling God our Father. His relationship to God, being God himself in the flesh, was obviously unique. So he said, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. His ascension would take place in 40 days. So their time for embracing would be brief, but a time for announcing would remain until his return. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. It was his privilege to actually see the risen Christ, as would over 500 witnesses before his ascension. Christ, in physical form, has now been gone for nearly 2,000 years, but he was here. He came as a baby into our world. He lived among us. He died for us. He arose us to assure us that he has the power over death and then ascended, promising to come back the same way he left. 
So while we may not be able to declare to the world that we have actually seen the Lord, we do know him. And we know he's alive. We know it through the historical record of his time on earth. And we know it through the spiritual encounter we have with him on a regular basis through prayer and through the ministry of his spirit. It's now our time for announcing that Jesus is alive. And while our encounter with him isn't exactly like Mary's, it can be similar in many ways. If you've ever felt the emptiness of losing a loved one, you've no doubt gone through a time of weeping. Weeping that hopefully didn't end in despair, but in a time of seeking, you know, seeking for answers and for a Savior who makes sense out of life and death. And in your seeking, I trust he found you and called out your name. When you heard it, I pray that you fell at his feet, embracing him, worshiping him, thanking him for enabling you to come into the family of God with the promise that someday you too will arise and ascend to his father and your father. That message from the tomb still needs to be announced. And that's the message I've been sharing in Chatham for 50 years. Yes, today the church is celebrating the fact that I've been the preacher at CCC for 50 years. And I've actually been Jim Montgomery's preacher for all those years. Cindy, his daughter, she was here when Marilyn and I came in July of 73, as was Burl and his family. But Jim is the only one who never took a break from CCC and my preaching. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps he's the one who should be honored for his endurance today <laughs> instead of me. <laughs> but he's not the only one. Many of you have listened to me for years. For that, I am humbled and very grateful. In fact, God has blessed me through all of you. Whether you've been here for years or have just recently become a part of our church family, I love being your preacher. And I love Chatham Christian Church. You know, we never became the big church that some had envisioned. But God has blessed us and used us as he saw fit for nearly 52 years. And as a relatively small church, we have sent numerous homegrown workers into the field. And have supported others that he sent our way. And I trust most who came to know what Jesus did for them through our times of study, worship, and fellowship together have faithfully shared their faith with others. 
As we noted last week, before John and Peter understood what had taken place in the tomb, they just went home. It's my prayer that none of us will ever just go home after coming to realize what took place in the tomb and what has been made possible by it. To help you share with others what took place in the tomb 2,000 years ago, I've got something for you today. Several months ago, Kathy Lasley gave me a copy of a little book entitled, Is Easter Unbelievable? Well, I knew it was believable, so I just put it on a stack of books I was reading and overlooked it for quite some time. Spotting it one day and feeling guilty for not having read something that had been given to me, I picked it up. I couldn't put it down until I'd finished it. Now, I know you've heard me say that a particular book I'm sharing on Sunday night is one of the best <laughs> or most important books I've ever read. So I won't say that today because I don't want you to just roll your eyes. What I do want you to do is to read a little 60-page book for yourself. And then if you think it's as good as I think it is, share it with someone else. It's easy to understand. It's beautifully written by a literature professor in England. And it addresses some very important questions related to the resurrection. Did Jesus really live in history? Is it fair for one person to die for another? How can a rational person believe Jesus rose from the dead? And does anyone genuinely want to live forever? The author invites us to consider the historical evidence for the events of the first Easter and shows why the resurrection story might be more believable and a whole lot better than we think. When I told the elders about the book and what I thought of it, they trusted me and ordered 200 of them on the spot. The books arrived last week, and I decided I wanted to give them to you as a 50th anniversary gift from me to you. So I put a check for them in the treasure's box and hid them in Easter baskets under the sermon table. <laughs> when you leave today, don't just go home. Take a book with you and read it and then give it to someone else. Next week, pick up some more to share. Let's all be like Mary and run to tell others, I, I have seen the Lord. It's been my pleasure for 50 years to help equip you 
to be able to say and to sing with absolute conviction, I serve a risen Savior. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's stand. Let's sing that together.